Welcome. You're listening to a podcast by the International Bolshevik Tendency, a Marxist organization fighting for international working class revolution to overthrow global capitalism. We can be found online at Bolshevik.org, on Facebook at Bolsheviks, on Twitter and YouTube at IBT1917, and Instagram at Bolsheviks1917. The following talk, entitled Pink Tides and Popular Fronts, was originally delivered at an online IBT forum on 11 June 2023. So Latin America and Pink Tides and uh, Popular Fronts. Uh, Latin America is in turmoil. Um, It's a continent that is buckling under the pressures of imperialist exploitation um, the lingering impact of the COVID-19 crisis in rampant inflation fueled, at least in part, by the U.S. Uh, NATO-led war in Ukraine. An estimated 40% of the region's population are designated as food insecure, which is up 9% since 2020. And even before the pandemic, uh, the region had the world's highest level of inequality which has, of course, only grown worse uh, as millions have been cast into unemployment. Approximately one-third of the region's total population live in poverty, and they're forced to eke out an existence on less than $7 a day, while 15% uh, live in what is designated as extreme poverty. Now, the last quarter century has seen uh, two distinct waves of left-leaning governments take power. Uh, commonly known as uh, the Pink Tide, um, throughout Latin America. And um, they rose to prominence on the back of popular support among the oppressed, who are um, and have been promised much, but inevitably end up being disappointed. And many of the parties and the groups that claim to be Marxist um, and uh, more narrowly defined as Trotskyist, um, they've backed and adapted to the backward consciousness of the masses and support to uh, varying degrees the pink tide governments as some sort of stage on the path to socialism. Now, the first wave of the pink tide emerged uh, at the end of the 20th century as left-leaning governments across Latin America claimed to challenge the neoliberal economic model and chart a viable um, well, what they considered a viable third-way socialist alternative to imperialist domination in the post-Soviet uh, era. Now, most famously, this included Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez, um, alongside others like Rafael Correa in Ecuador, Evo Morales in Bolivia, and uh, Lula in Brazil. Now, Venezuela serves as a case study Uh, not only of a failed pink tide experiment, but of the dereliction of duty by much of the supposedly revolutionary left. Uh, Chavez was, of course, elected president in 1999, uh, promoting what he termed the Bolivarian Revolution. And among the most vocal cheerleaders of this so-called Bolivarian Revolution was the international Marxist tendency, uh, known as the IMT who are led by the fairly well-known intellectual Alan Woods. Um, 
Now, the IMT politically adapted to the non-working class forces represented by Chavez and suggested that some kind of an amorphous uh, revolutionary process was underway in Venezuela. Um, the IMT's notion of conception of revolution ultimately boiled down to proposing that Chavez adopt a parliamentary road to socialism. At the height of Chavez's power, Alan Woods, the leader of the IMT, suggested that, quote, the president, Chavez, uh, the president introduced an enabling act in the National Assembly to nationalize the land the banks, and the key industries under workers' control and management, end quote. Woods went on to claim that, quote, this could have been done quite legally by the democratically elected parliament, since in a democracy, the elected representatives of the people are supposed to be sovereign, end quote. Now, at one point, uh, Alan Woods even served as some kind of an informal advisor to what he called Comrade uh, Chavez himself. And in Woods' 2013 obituary for Chavez, uh, he paid the following tribute to Chavez's supposed, um, according to Woods, his supposed, quote, revolutionary, anti-imperialist, and socialist legacy. So this is Woods in uh, 2013. Quote, on Tuesday, March the 5th, at 4.25 p.m., the cause of freedom, socialism, and humanity lost a great man, and the author of these lines lost a great friend. Hugo Chavez spoke for the poor, the dispossessed, the wretched of the earth, and he gave a voice to those millions with no voice. There was nobody like Chavez when he was alive, and there is no single person that can replace him. Now he is dead. End quote. Now, of course, a decade later, after Chavez's death, uh, with the sheen of the Venezuelan revolution having worn off, the IMT has, of course, toned down its positive coverage of the Bolivarian government. But, of course, in recent years, a number of left-wing uh, populists and pseudo-socialists have once again been swept into office. Uh, in Mexico, uh, Argentina, uh, Bolivia, Peru, Honduras... Chile, Colombia, and uh, most recently the return of Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, also known as Lula, um, who's the, back in the presidency in Brazil. Uh, he returned in January of this year. Uh, these new leftist leaders are, uh, as with the previous wave, um, some 20 years ago, uh, firmly committed to capitalist rule and seek to administer the bourgeois state on behalf of the ruling class. And although all those countries that I mentioned a minute ago, although um, ideologically um, the pink tide governments are somewhat heterogeneous, um, they share a principal social function in effectively diffusing mass anger at the base of society and channeling discontent into the dead end of bourgeois electoral politics. And meanwhile, uh, much of the ostensibly revolutionary left in Latin America continues to make the same mistakes of the past. Um, and I think two countries illustrate this point um, quite well, uh, Chile and Brazil. In both Chile and Brazil, the, um, these, the rise of these peak tide, peak tide governments 
uh, represent a particular form of class collaboration and betrayal. Uh, namely, the Latin American left giving what they call critical support to uh, the reformist social democratic components uh, that are in coalition with outright capitalist parties, um, what Marxists call uh, popular fronts, popular front governments. And at its core, uh, the popular front in popular, popular frontism is essentially coalitionism. That is, coalitions or blocks between the political representatives of the working class and those of the ruling class. And during periods of heightened class struggle, uh, these coalitions or these alliances come to form governing coalitions or popular front governments. And the popular front, therefore, um, is really an expression of the theories and the practices of class collaboration. Uh, that is a block of organizations and parties representing various classes, whether they be the working class, a petty bourgeois or capitalist class, all on the basis of a common political program. Um, okay, so let's look at Chile first. Um, it, so in December of 2021, former student leader Gabriel Boric was elected president of Chile, um, riding a mass, mass wave of, um, or a wave of mass upheaval against social inequality that rose up in 2019 under uh, the then right-wing billionaire president, Sebastian Panera. Um, now, Boric was feted as a young, what he, you know, self-described himself as, uh, a quote-unquote moderate socialist. And he uh, ended up on the cover of Time, mag mag Time magazine, uh, described as the leading member of a so-called new guard of Latin American leftists. And <clears throat> when he took office, there were... Um, high expectations from the working class and the poor in his administration. Um, his election platform featured calls to address tax evasion by the ultra-rich, uh, parasitic private pension schemes, um, ecologically destructive mining projects, and crushing student debt, as well as promises to overhaul Chile's state institutions. Um, but upon assuming office, Boric uh, established a popular front government um, made up of a complicated patchwork of coalitions and alliances. Um, he personally ran as the candidate of uh, a Pueblo Dignidad, which is Spanish uh, for roughly, it translates into approved dignity, an electoral coalition of leftist political blocs, which includes uh, reformist social democrats, the Communist Party of Chile, left libertarians, radical democrats, and uh, petty bourgeois environmentalists. Um, now, the bulk of Boric's cabinet is staffed by members of his Approved Dignity Coalition, um, but a number of posts have gone to capitalist parties, uh, such as the Liberal Party, uh, which got the Public Works Portfolio, or Ministry, and the Radical Party, which got the Mining Ministry, which is obviously a key uh, sector of the Chilean economy. Now, a number of self-proclaimed Trotskyist groups uh, lined up behind the Popular Front candidacy of Boric in the December 2021 election, uh, which was a runoff against ultra-conservative uh, Jose Antonio Cast. Um, now, among those backing Boric were uh, supporters of the Morenoite <laughs> International Workers Unity Fourth International, or the IWLFI. Uh, the International Socialist Alternative, uh, also known by its acronym, the ISA, um, and they were previously affiliated to Peter Taft's now 
splintered uh, Committee for Workers International, and of course, Alan Woods' IMT. So the IWLFI, the ISA, and the IMT. Um, all of them essentially saw Boric as the lesser evil candidate in that election, and they argued to vote for him in the second round to prevent Cast from be, becoming uh, president. Um, now, um, after over a year in power, um, with Boric having, of course, uh, failed to fulfill his campaign promises, uh, his approval ratings have unsurprisingly, unsurprisingly uh, collapsed to, uh, last time I checked, it was around 28%. Um, now, in particular, he has disappointed um, many people, but in particular, um, Chile's indigenous peoples. Uh, who make up approximately 13% of the Chilean population and have fought a decades-long battle for uh, legal recognition under Chile's constitution, which is the only one in Latin America not to uh, acknowledge its indigenous peoples. Uh, during his election campaign, uh, Boric uh, criticized previous governments for resorting to state repression against indigenous peoples. Um, and sought to portray his incoming administration as heralding what he described as, quote, a new relation between the government and indigenous peoples, end quote. Now, instead, uh, Boric has pursued the same heavy-handed approach as his predecessors. Uh, in May last year of 2022, uh, when a long-standing dispute between the Chilean state and the Mapuche uh, escalated in the southern Araucania region of Chile, uh, Boric denounced indigenous activists as terrorists. He declared a state of emergency, and then he sent in the army to contain the crisis. The Mapuche are by far um, the country's most uh, numerous indigenous group, um, and they have been struggling against an array of powerful uh, logging companies and large ranchers, ranchers in south of Chile. Uh, who are all backed by the Chilean state and um, which have cohered around a program of rejecting indigenous demands for greater autonomy and the return of their ancestral lands uh, that were dispossessed during the process of European colonization. Uh, Boric's key election platform pledged to replace the country's deeply unpopular constitution, uh, which was established under the military dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet, has also likewise, you know, failed to materialize. Um, when a national referendum on a new constitution took place in September of 2022, it was rejected by 62% of voters uh, with the right wing and the remnants of the Pinochet dictatorship uh, mobilizing uh, heavily for a no vote. Uh, Boric's newly proposed constitution was to provide guarantees on uh, rights to health care, education, and pensions, and attempt to lay the groundwork for introducing major reforms by the government. And while some of its provisions included positive reforms that um, clearly were supportable, um, the constitution itself uh, also guaranteed private property rights and never fundamentally threaten Chilean capitalist social relations. Now in Chile, in the end, instead of drawing a hard class line and warning against the role that a supposedly transformative government led by Boric uh, would play in propping up Chilean capitalism, 
the IWL, FI, the ISA, and the IMT all pandered to mass illusions in order to avoid isolation and ended up supporting the Popular Front candidate of Borich. Um, so let's uh, now take a look at Popular Frontism in Brazil. Obviously, Lula is once again ruling Brazil after having narrowly defeated right-wing populist Jair Bolsonaro in the president, presidential election in October uh, 2022. Um, and Lula's Social Democratic Workers' Party, um, also known as the PT, um, they ran an openly class collaborationist campaign in which Lula called to unite, quote, Democrats of all political positions, classes, races, and religious beliefs to overcome our differences and build an alternative path to the incompetence and authoritarianism that governs us. That's a quote from Lula in May of last year. Now, his uh, official electoral bloc, which was called Brazil of Hope, um, was a popular frontist lash-up centered, obviously, around the PT and their longtime bloc partners in the Communist Party of Brazil. Um, but it also included the petty bourgeois Green Party, and, as well as a number of other reformist social democratic and uh, petty, bourgeois or, petty bourgeois or small capitalist parties. Uh, <clears throat> roughly one third of Lula's cabinet positions have gone to the PT, naturally, um, and another third to various um, block partners of the PT. Uh, the remaining third uh, went to openly capitalist parties that are expected to provide Lula and the PT with uh, legislative support in Congress, where his leftist coalition is in uh, the minority. Um, so the right-wing Brazil Union, the centrist Social Democratic uh, Party, and the center-right Brazilian Democratic Movement, which are all capitalist political parties, they were given three cabinet positions each. As well, the right-wing populist Brazil Labour Party, despite its you know mis misnomer of a name, um, occupies the Ministry of Defence, uh, while the Petty Bourgeois Sustainability Network, which is kind of this eco-outfit, political outfit, um, their party takes care of the environment portfolio. Now, earlier this year in January, a week after Lula took power, uh, far-right supporters of Bolsonaro stormed the government headquarters in Brasilia with the uh, apparent sympathy of elements of the police and security establishment. Uh, so this clearly suggests that a wing of the Brazilian bourgeoisie was prepared um, to disregard bourgeois democratic norms and dismiss Lula's electoral victory um, and test the waters for pursuing uh, authoritarian rule. Now, fast forward about five months later to today, it's pretty clear that an authoritarian seizure of power by Bolsonaro and his supporters is not an immediate threat. Um, but a takeover, takeover by Bolsonaro or another suitable uh, military strongman uh, backed by Brazil's armed forces um, cannot be ruled out. And while Marxists would never give political support to Lula's cross-class popular front coalition, um, if Bolsonaro and his supporters uh, were to uh, launch a coup, uh, it would, of course, be necessary for the working class to form a military bloc uh, with Lula and the PT to defend them, uh, focusing on 
uh, using class struggle methods such as strikes, uh, mass protest, and armed resistance to defeat any attempted coup. Now, instead of fighting uh, for um, a perspective of working class independence in Brazil, much of the far left uh, in Brazil is helping to set the scene for a disaster by backing one way or another Lula's popular front. Uh, Some of these organizations in the far left in Brazil are working inside the Socialism and Liberty Party, which is known by its Portuguese acronym of PISOL, uh, which is now part of Lula's government. Um, They actually head up the Ministry of Indigenous Peoples. They have a portfolio. PSOL was founded uh, in 2004 by former members of the PT who um, were expelled uh, from the PT after they voted in Congress against Lula's proposed uh, pension reform. This, of course, would have been under Lula's first uh, term in office. Um, And since then, since 2004... Uh, PSOL has sought to present itself as the main, you know, left-wing alternative to the PT um, and has therefore attracted the interests of a number of ostensibly Trotskyist organizations uh, looking for a larger host, uh, including, again, the uh, same three organizations I mentioned uh, in talking about Chile, the IWLFI, the ISA, and the IMT who, of course, were all united in calling to vote for Lula and the PT in the election. The uh, IWLFI's Brazilian group, um, bizarrely, um, backed Lula, despite the fact that it apparently views the PT as a, quote, thoroughly bourgeois party, i.e. capitalist, um, that, quote, has not been a working class party for a long time. So on this basis, the IWLFI claims that Lula's government is not even, you know, doesn't qualify as a popular front, um, but what they call or characterize as a normal bourgeois government, yet they still, for some strange reason, decided to vote for it. Um, Now, just before the second round of the runoff election, um, the IMT, who are known in Brazil as Esquerda Marxista, the Marxist left, they wrote the following, quote, The Marxist left has already defended a critical vote for Lula in the first round and reaffirms this position for the second round. Vote for Lula to defeat Bolsonaro and continue the fight for the immediate and historic demands of the working class. End quote. And when Lula and the PT eventually won the election, uh, the Brazilian section of the ISA wrote um, somewhat enthusiastically, quote, This represents a victory for the workers and all poor and oppressed people. The working class and the poor, suffering and oppressed people of this country have the right to celebrate. End quote. And when PSOL, the, you know, political party in which these three Trotskyist groups are working, when they took up a cabinet position in Lula's popular front government in January this year, all three ostensibly Trotskyist organizations refuse to break from PSOL, and they are all still inside PSOL today. Now, no doubt, the leadership of these groups think they can gain a hearing among the Brazilian working class and avoid the fate of what they you know, characterize as sectarian obscurity uh, by voting for and actually participating in the popular front. While, of course, you know, they all have criticisms warning of the dangers of class collaboration and popular frontism, which is fairly cheap, um, considering they're still in peaceful. 
um, and voted for Lula. But I suspect that, um, you know, instead of pandering to these illusions that class-conscious workers in Brazil would prefer to hear the truth up front and receive advice on how to chart a course of working-class independence rather than be pandered to while they were still under the spell of popular frontism. Now, the, the pink tide popular fronts of the early 20th for 21st century, both ways, of course, um, are not isolated examples of class collabor- collaboration, and nor are cross-class uh, governing co- coalitions a new invention. Uh, popular frontism or cross-class coalitions have a long history, uh, going back uh, a century, and genuine Marxists have always consistently opposed them. Within reformist workers' parties like Lula's PT or uh, in Britain, the Labour Party um, or the NDP here in Canada, <clears throat> there exists a profound contradiction uh, between, on the one hand, the proletarian or working class organizational base and the historical association with the labor movement within these parties, and on the other hand, the fundamentally pro-capitalist and class collaborationist aims of their leadership. So basically between the the base and the tops. Uh, Vladimir Lenin, of course, the uh, great Russian revolutionary, uh, described these uh, reformist organizations as what he called bourgeois workers' parties. That is bourgeois in political program and uh, outlook and orientation, yet workers in their links to the mass organizations of the working class. And in order to retain these links, uh, such parties must at times at least to appear to be fighting for the workers' interest against those of the ruling class and therefore stand um, in par- deformed and partial ways for working class independence. And it is this contradiction um, that is the political basis upon which revolutionaries may sometimes, not always, more often than not, not, but sometimes, uh, offer critical support to bourgeois workers' parties in elections. And it's always conceived as a means to put the Social Democrats to the test of office, expose the emptiness of their pretensions to stand for the interests of workers, and thereby advance the struggle to split the base from the leadership. Uh, in a sense, a way to win over the more radical elements to the perspective of breaking with the reformists and instead building a mass revolutionary party. However, uh, when these parties appear before the masses as part of a coalition with the open parties of capitalism, that is, as a popular front, they are explicitly repudiating any claim to stand for the political independence of the working class. And as long as that bloc or that coalition is in effect with the open parties of capitalism, uh, the underlying contradiction embodied in these bourgeois workers' parties is suppressed. And in such situations, political support of any kind for the, you know, workers component of a popular front, uh, much like that of the IWLFI or the ISA, ISA and the IMT for Boric and Lula, um, this is a vote for the bourgeoisie and a betrayal of the most fundamental principle of class struggle politics, uh, working class independence. Now, the the pink tide... Uh, coalitions of today are a pale imitation of the Chilean Unidad Popular government of Salvador Allende's uh, of the um, 1970s, early 1970s. Um, And the Popular Front Pact 
uh, signed in December of 1969, which established the Unidad Popular, or the, you know, in English known as the Popular Unity. Um, this uh, political pact was an openly cross-class agreement between reformist labor and liberal bourgeois parties in Chile. So it, it included Allende's Socialist Party, the pro-Moscow Communist Party of Chile, uh, the right-wing Social Democrats, the rump of the bourgeois liberal radical party, and fragments of the Christian Democrats. So the capitalist component of the Popular Front and the bourgeois radical party and the Christian Democrats. <clears throat> and together, um, these parties all ran on a joint ticket in a common political program, uh, standing behind the ultimately successful candidacy of Allende in the September 1970 presidential election. And upon taking power... Allende assembled a cabinet in which eight out of the 15 members came from these capitalist parties, despite the fact that they accounted for only a small proportion of the popular unity's vote in the uh, 1970 election. The remaining seven positions went to uh, the quote-unquote workers component of the popular front. Uh, four of them went to Allende's socialist party and three to the communists. Now, while sprinkled with radical-sounding phraseology, um, at bottom, the Popular Unity's political program for the presidential election uh, outlined a thoroughly reformist conception of social change, uh, which was premised on what Allende called uh, the Chilean road to socialism. <clears throat> and this uh, promoted the notion of a peaceful parliamentary road to socialism that uh, sought to implement far-reaching social reforms within the confines of capitalism and the framework of bourgeois legality. Um, in many ways, uh, much like Alan Woods's proposal for Chavez to introduce an enabling act in Venezuela. Um, and Allende's Chilean road to socialism uh, was explicitly based on the anti-Marxist notion that the capitalist state, um, namely the parliament, the judiciary, the executive and the armed forces and police <clears throat> could somehow be harnessed to serve the interests of the working class. Now, despite Allende's uh, reformist political outlook, um, his coming to power enraged the large landowners in Chile, the military establishment, and domestic financial and industrial interests. And all of them allied uh, almost immediately with foreign capital in the imperialist centers. And together, they began a coordinated effort to sabotage and destabilize Allende's government. So, for example, short, shortly after Allende's election, a de facto uh, international economic blockade against Chile was imposed, uh, which caused or helped contribute to a massive downturn in the Chilean economy, and uh, as well as price spikes, uh, particularly for basic food items. Um, and faced with this emboldened resistance by international finance capital, domestic right-wing forces within Chile and the growing threat of, a, threat of a coup, Allende and the popular unity government responded by actually suppressing growing working-class militancy. Um, when uh, Cordonas Industrialis, which is Spanish, it, it roughly, you know, it's the Spanish, it roughly translates into, into English for these industrial belts, which were essentially Soviet-type bodies of rank-and-file workers in industrial uh, districts. 
Uh, so when these industrial belts emerged in the summer of 1972, as things were radicalizing, uh, this Chilean CP and Allende Socialist Party, uh, both of them immediately denounced them and ordered their members to boycott them. Uh, when the most militant layers of the Chilean working class uh, understandably began calling for armed worker self-defense militias, uh, Allende dismissed their demands, and he declared, quote, There will be no armed forces here other than those stipulated by the Constitution. That is to say, the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. I shall eliminate any others if they appear. That's Allende. End quote. Um, so increasingly at odds with its working class base, uh, the government tried to rely on the uh, very same uh, ruling class layers and military clique actively plotting its overthrow. So, for example, in August of 1973, um, Allende brought three top generals into his cabinet, including Augusto Pinochet, who was appointed commander in chief of the Chilean army. And Less than a month later, on 11 September 1973, the Chilean military, which was now unified under the leadership of General Pinochet, and of course backed by the U.S., um, they surrounded the presidential palace and overthrew the government. Uh, the immediate aftermath of that coup um, included a reign of terror that I imagine many of us are familiar with. Um, and it, it targeted not just members of the government, but all those sectors of uh, society who had mobilized uh, support uh, for Allende, uh, including workers, uh, peasants, shantytown residents, students, and leftists of all uh, political stripes. Mass arrests and detentions followed, including targeted executions, detentions, and, you know, the quote-unquote disappearance of leftist political militants by the secret police force. And it's estimated that, it's estimated that um, approximately 40,000 Chileans were executed, tortured, or imprisoned during Pinochet's years in power, while some 200,000 fled the country or were forced into exile. Now, as far as our organization is aware, only our forerunners of the once revolutionary Spartacist League outlined a Marxist approach to the Chilean Popular Front at the time and predicted its uh, tragic downfall. So when Allende and the Popular Unity took power in November of 1970, um, the SL warned, and this is a fairly lengthy quote, but it's excellent. you got to remember, this is three years before Allende was th overthrown uh, and at the height of his uh, popularity upon taking power. The SLs wrote, quote, It is the most elementary duty for revolutionary Marxists to irreconcilably oppose the popular front in the election and to place absolutely no confidence in it in power. Any critical support to Allende, to the Allende coalition, is class treason, paving the way for a bloody defeat by the Chilean working people, uh, for the Chilean working people. When these parties enter a coalition government with the parties of capitalism, any such critical support would be a betrayal because the coalition has suppressed the class contradiction in the bourgeoisie's favor. It is our job, then, to recreate the basis of struggle within such parties by demanding they break with the coalition. This break must be the elementary precondition for even the most critical support. End quote. Now, 
Of course, today, the likes of Lula and Boric pose no threat to the established order and ruling class interests. And while sounding less radical than their ideological predecessor, Allende, uh, their class collaboration is project of shackling the working class uh, to the bourgeoisie via the popular front governments is no less dangerous. Um, Just like Chile under Allende, if Boric or Lula were to stray too far from the confines set by the popular front or unintentionally radicalize their base, leading to widespread social instability, Uh, There's no reason to expect that the ruling classes and their imperialist overlords would not simply opt for another Pinochet-style, you know, resolution of the situation. The Latin American working class desperately uh, requires a mass revolutionary party with Bolshevik leadership. And such a party would be opposed uh, not only to the capitalist class, but also to their accomplices, Uh, the reformists of all shades. And it would be capable of articulating a revolutionary program and fighting for a working class seizure of power. And obviously, you know, given the nature of today's talk and what's been going on in Latin America, um, a key programmatic task for revolutionaries in that continent today is to assert their implacable political opposition to all expressions of class collaboration and popular frontism. And in those countries with popular front governments like Brazil and Chile, uh, class struggle militants seek to expose the reformist labor traders and politically reorient the working class away from supporting the popular front and instead towards seeking to establish uh, organs of workers' powers, councils, or Soviet-type formations. And such organizations would um, form the framework for a new state power a workers' republic. A revolutionary program would also call to expropriate industry, uh, financial institutions and government coffers, which would uh, go a long way to helping to lay the the material foundations for the creation of a rationally planned uh, socialist economy. And this, of course, necessarily includes collectivizing the property of the large landowners, church, and foreign imperialist powers. The liberation of Latin America's working people and oppressed requires a political program that not only addresses their immediate needs, such as housing, health care, employment, poverty, and climate change, um, but does so in a manner that creates a bridge uh, to a worker's government in the first stages of the transition to socialism. Such demands must therefore be integrated into a revolutionary transitional program. Now, the strategic perspective of workers' power throughout Latin America, um, which was originated with the third, or the communist international, the Comintern, under Lenin and the Bolsheviks, uh, was alone upheld by Trotsky's Fourth International. In May uh, 1940, the Fourth International held an emergency conference of the Fourth International, um, and they outlined its prospects for what they called the future of Latin America, which is an analysis that uh, we think retains all its vitality or some 80 years later. So this is a fairly lengthy quote, but it's exceptional considering it was written 83 years ago. And this will, I'll end my presentation with this. So the Fourth International, quote, uh, South, America, South and Central America will be able to tear themselves out of backwardness and enslavement only by uniting all their states into one powerful federation. 
But it is not the belated South American bourgeoisie, a thoroughly venal agency of foreign imperialism, who will be called upon to solve this task, but the young South American proletariat, the chosen leader of the oppressed masses. Only under its own revolutionary direction is the proletariat of the, semi, the colonies and the semi-colonies <clears throat> capable of achieving invincible collaboration with the proletariat of the metropolitan centers and with the world working class as a whole. Only this collaboration can lead the oppressed peoples to complete and final emancipation through the overthrow of imperialism the world over. Workers must develop the revolutionary struggle in every country, colonial or imperialist, where favorable conditions have been established, and through this, set an example for the workers of other countries. Only initiative and activity, resoluteness and boldness can really materialize the slogan, workers of the world unite. Thank you.